Please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews and chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, commencing to read at verse 32 and reading through the end of the chapter at verse 39. Hebrews chapter 10 and commencing to read at verse 32. Again, please give your careful attention. This is the Word of God. Hebrews 10 at verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of our God endures forever. The author of Hebrews was a faithful pastor who is focused here on the concerns of his flock. He is particularly concerned that these professing believers do not shrink back from trusting in Christ alone for salvation. For if they do, they will be destroyed. He understood that whatever else may happen to them in this pilgrim way, this mattered more than anything else, that they do not shrink back, but persevere unto the end. And so we return to this passage that we began last Lord's Day morning, Hebrews 10, 32 through 39, where here the author shows a flexible pastoral approach, recognizing that some people need to be challenged, others encouraged, others warned, and others inspired. 
as we conclude this exposition, we are going to do so using three headings. First of all, by way of review, powerful memory and future receiving revisited. Secondly, persevering saints. And then thirdly, coming soon. So first of all then, and by way of setting again the context for this passage, powerful memory and future receiving revisited. Here we're looking at verses 32 through 34 and 35 through 37. No matter what we may think of it in the present day, the author of Hebrews thought that the past was an important resource for the present. He began here with the word recall, or sometimes it may be rendered in other translations, remember, Hebrews 10 verse 32. He wanted his readers to remember what they had been enabled to do in an earlier trial. He wanted them to remember how sufficient is God's grace for those who look to Him in trouble. Verse 32 through 34. That reminded us that the goal of the believer, particularly as he or she faces trial, the goal of the Christian in trial is to stand firm to endure, to persevere, and to be partners with those who are like persecuted for the faith. This was their experience, wasn't it? He says, you've experienced this and you have stood alongside those who have had like experience. Well, if the present involved suffering for them, then they were able to know also that the future involved receiving. It may be present affliction, but there was something far better to come that they would receive. As believers, they and we look forward to receiving all that God has promised to those who trust in him. The knowledge of what is stored up for us empowers us, enables us to persevere in present trials. That's what the author tells them, verses 35 through 36. Here he tells them especially that what they are in need of, this hope that enables them to stand firm. Here the author locates that hope specifically in the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, verse 37. We know for sure that He is coming, and He is coming soon. And whilst we wait for Him, we serve Him. We seek by His grace to endure, to stand firm, to persevere, looking forward to that glorious future in great hope and with joyful expectation. 
I trust you do that this morning, brother and sister in Christ, whoever you are, young, old, young believer, old believer, whatever stage you are in on the Christian life, we know for sure Christ is coming. Behold, I am coming soon, said Jesus. We serve Him whilst we await that return. But as we serve Him, we look forward, we look upward to a future that is full of realized hope and joyful expectation. Well then, concluding then our review of what we looked at last Lord's Day, we come in the second place this morning to persevering saints. Persevering saints, verse 36 and verse 38. Now, given a past marked by persevering, by triumph, as it were, in the Christian life, and looking at a future that is filled with great hope, the author here constructs something for the present, what we might call a mandate for the present. You have been enabled to stand fast in the past a great triumph. You have great hope looking to the future. But what about for the present? What are we to do now? Are we called to principally and primarily to therefore go on the offensive as the Christian church against this world? as it were, trying to hasten Christ's return by seemingly trying to swallow up each and every culture of this world, and we ourselves bring in the kingdom of God. You may know some Christians who take that view. The author does not say that here, does he? Conversely, you find Christians who say, but, you know, it's so hard in the present I know God has enabled me to stand in the past, and I know the glorious future that is coming, the consummation of the kingdom of God, which God will bring in, for it will come down from heaven. But it's so hard at the present time. Should the church not simply circle the wagons, as it were, go almost into hiding, Desperately hoping to hold out somehow, because it, it doesn't look obvious that we will. And so maybe the best strategy is for the Christian church to almost become invisible. As many of you know, I like to follow Star Trek. And uh, through the years, I've used some Star Trek analogies. Um, here's another one this morning. If it doesn't work for you, come and see me. I'll try and explain it some more. I won't take up all the time of the sermon to explain Star Trek. Um, but if you know anything about that, you'll know one of the great enemies of the Federation is the Klingons. And from very early on, what the Klingons could do was cloak their ships so that they were invisible. Here's the illustration. It seems sometimes that the church's strategy is they want a cloak to make them invisible to the hostile world. But somehow we can just retreat somewhere, 
put the cloaking device in place and just hope the world leaves us alone until the Lord comes back. That is not what the Scripture says. That is not what the Scripture says. The church is not given a cloaking device so that we can simply hide and be left alone. What are we to do according to the author to the Hebrews? Verse 36, for you have need of endurance, he says, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, the perseverance of the saints is one of the defining doctrines of Reformed theology. This doctrine teaches because the Word of God teaches that whilst believers are saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, and that is because of God's sovereign predestination, yet Christians must persevere until the end of their lives or until Christ returns, whichever one comes first. It is the believer who perseveres. Yes, by God's enabling. Yes, by the gift of faith which God gives. But the true believer called to Christ must persevere to the end. For you have need of endurance, the author says. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Probably the clearest statement linking these two ideas of sovereign grace and the necessity to persevere is in a passage we only had the briefest of time in all age Sunday school to think about. Second uh, Peter 1 and verses 10 to 11, where Peter says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's point here is not that we as believers are to elect ourselves. We do not and cannot. His point here is rather to make sure that we are among God's elect people. That's his emphasis here. How do we do that? By persevering in the faith by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through faith in Him, by continuing to walk in the ways of the Lord according to that law of God, which is now the guide to the Christian, that guide to direct Him for all of His life. We might ask, what are the qualities that mark a persevering Christian then? What does that really look like? 
How would you know it, looking to yourself or looking to someone else? What does that look like? Well, Peter helps us again, 2 Peter 1 at verse 5. Uh, here the apostle, having defined perseverance in terms of positive growth, goes on to say, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. This is the path along which the Christian is to walk if he is to persevere, if he is to endure, if he is to be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is the path on which and by which we persevere in faith, even through every kind of trouble and affliction. Now, this doctrine of God's Word, the perseverance of the saints, the necessity of that, we must persevere. We must grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We must grow in the faith. It's not a doctrine that should alarm any true believer. Instead, it should simply remind us that it is the teaching of the Lord Himself. Why did Christ's apostles teach this? Because Jesus taught it. John 15 at verse 9, Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so, what? Prove to be my disciples. The bearing of fruit does not grant salvation. The bearing of fruit proves salvation, proves the reality of it, the existence of it. Puritan Thomas Watson puts it like this. He says, quote, Christians do not arrive at perseverance when they sit still and do nothing. It is not with us as with passengers in a ship who are carried to the end of their voyage whilst they sit still in the ship, or as it is with noblemen who have their rents brought in with their toil without their toil or labor. But we arrive at salvation in the use of means. As a man comes to the end of a race by running, to a victory by fighting. End quote. You get Watson's point. Perseverance is not like a bag on a journey. It's just sitting there and it, it comes with you. And you just sit and do nothing, it's there. He says, rather it's like running the race. You have got to run. It's like a victory in battle. You have to fight. You don't achieve victory, do you, by just standing watching, sitting still. That's the point here. The same God who ordained the end of salvation for His elect also 
ordained the means by which we will get there. And that's the balance of the teaching of Holy Scripture. God sovereignly elects the end of salvation. We will get there. But He also sovereignly ordains the means by which that will be accomplished. And that is by the perseverance of the saints. We can say the same about perseverance as that we can say about faith. God gives the faith, but God does not exercise the faith for you. You must believe if you would be saved. It is the same with perseverance. God grants the grace by which, through which we persevere, but we must persevere. That's what he says here, verse 36. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What does perseverance mean in very simple terms? It means acting in faith. And acting in faith results in our growth and grace and knowledge of the truth, persevering unto the very end. It's not inaction. It's not idleness. It's a very active thing. To persevere, therefore, we must make use of the means that God has sovereignly ordained, the means of grace. When we come together, particularly on the Lord's Day, but at other times too, as the church, as we seek to hear His Word and to apply it and to do it, as James would say, by God's enabling, as we partake of the sacraments, those means of grace which God has given to His church, as we commune with Him in prayer, yes, we can do that privately. Yes, we can and should do it in our homes as families, but principally and primarily as the gathered church, the corporate means of grace. It is through these things. It's very interesting, in, particularly in our own day, and it has been so um, in modern times to hear Christians, when you say to them, so how are you growing in grace and knowledge of the truth? And Christians might have quite a long list of the things that they think have been the means by which they have been growing in grace. And uh, often at the top of that list are very individual things. Well, my reading of the Bible and uh, my time of prayer. And nobody's saying that those are not things which cannot help you grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. But what does the Scripture focus on, first and foremost? It is not individual things, however beneficial they may be to us, but rather the established means of grace that God has given to His church. That's why ultimately, brethren, if I remain at home, although I suspect I would not be allowed to, given the call that I have taken up in this congregation, 
uh, as an elder of the church, but if I stayed at home without legitimate reason, be it sickness, hindrance, whatever it may be, and simply said, well, you know, I can read the Bible at home, it would not be acceptable. It is not the means that God has sovereignly first and primarily established so that we might persevere, so that we might endure. If we want to know how to do this, we have to do it in the way that the Scriptures themselves teach. The author of Hebrews has already spoken, will speak again about not neglecting the assembling of yourselves together. Now, given the church was under somewhat greater physical difficulties than we are at present, and as we've talked many times in this series, the likelihood was that was going to get worse rather than better in the immediate term. Do you think if it was an option to simply say, well, you know, you can just hunker down. Now we're not even talking about putting a cloaking device over the local church. I can have my own personal one, right? Just install it. My own Klingon ship at home. And I'm just going to hunker down and wait till the Lord returns, do my own thing. It's not what the Scripture says, does it? Again and again, when the apostles speak to the church, when you gather, it speaks of corporate things, of perseverance. Yes, has to be done in each and every one of us. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. I can't persevere for you. I can seek to stimulate you as you can for me, provoking one another to love and good works. Perseverance is one of those. But in the end, I must do that if I profess to be a true believer. But how do I do that? By the means that God Himself has first and foremost established. And they're not I'm saying that these other things cannot be of other help to us, indeed, as they are. Well, then that brings us in the third place to coming soon, coming soon. Verses 35, 37, and 39. The author of Hebrews draws confidence from the past, as we've seen, and he draws confidence from the future. Verse 35, he says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. In both the past and the future, confidence comes from the Lord. The one who, as we read of him in the book of the Revelation, Revelation 1.8, the one who is and who was and who is to come. In the past, we find the gracious Lord who sustained us even through all of our difficulties and trials. And in the light of that, He is surely then the one who will sustain us now in present difficulties. And we gain confidence from the future because that same Savior who enabled us to persevere in the past, who is currently enabling us to persevere in the future, is the one, that same one, who is coming for us soon. Verse 37. That's why ultimately Christians believe in the value of history. Um, perhaps it sounds a little twee, but it is true. So, if you can get over the tweeness of the way of saying this, 
then the truth embedded in it is so wonderful. History is His story. It's the story of Jesus Christ and His great redemption. Sometimes, you know, you've seen that maybe so many times on a bumper sticker or whatever. Like I say, it kind of just grates a little bit in terms of its uh, seeming um, uh, not really being thought about with the, with the seriousness and the depth that it deserves. Um, but we shouldn't jettison the truth of that just because of some of that uh, hindrance, brethren. History is His story. The past is defined by the great victory of Christ, life, death, resurrection. The future holds before us the victory of Christ in His glorious return and eternal reign in a consummate kingdom. But what about the present? The present with all of its trials and all of its difficulties. That's where we are now as believers sustained by the same power of the same victorious Christ. What is victory for the Christian in the present life? Ever wondered about that or thought about that? There's no shortage of suggestions often. As is often the case, it's easier to say what it's not first before you, t- you say, think about what it truly is. Victory for the Christian now is not the absence of trial, nor the removal of all of our worldly foes, the sin, the flesh, the devil. One commentator puts it like this. You can tell he's a modern commentator. He says, quote, Victorious Christianity is not something that takes place at political rallies, nor taking over the culture for Jesus. It is what happens, and then he gives a list. Let me walk you through them. He says, it is what happens when a grieving believer is enabled to smile through tears at a graveside thinking of the resurrection morning. He goes on to say, victory comes when a follower of Christ is enabled to show love to a very unpleasant neighbor because of the love of Christ for this world. Again, victory is gained today for the believer when persecuted believers stand firm before a mocking culture that applicable to us? I think so. When we refuse to abandon our creed, what we say we believe. He concludes by saying, victory for the Christian is standing beside fellow believers in their persecution or trial or trouble. He seeks to make it very practical as he ends. He says, quote, It is singing hymns of joy, even whilst friends in this world or assets may be lost. End quote. Very practical, isn't it? That's what it looks like. How how can he say that? I mean, surely that, that sounds too idealistic, does it not? I mean, is that achievable? Is that accomplished? in the lives of Christians in the here and now. 
The Apostle John would have believed so. First John 5, 4, he says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. No matter what the world can do to the man, woman, boy, or girl who is in Christ, we can sing for joy. Why? Because of ultimately the one who is coming is coming soon because of that glorious tomorrow which is already ours. That's why the Apostle Paul says, Romans 8 verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, we thought about this text in um, Sunday school. Again, didn't have time to go through it in detail, but I knew it was coming, so here we are. Now we will read it. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Do you think he's left anything out? He hasn't, has he? None of those things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why the author of Hebrews, verse 39, says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. There writes the great pastor of the epistle to the Hebrews, inspired, as it were, with the confidence that comes from those who are in Christ Jesus, looking to the past of how thus far has He helped us, looking to the future of our glorious hope being brought to fruition. The coming one is coming soon. Inspired in the confidence of that, He says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Verse 39. Brethren, if you are a Christian this morning, if you are truly united to Christ by faith, with what is ours in Christ, we have every reason for that kind of confidence, even in the worst of trials. Whatever situation you may be in, however long that has been ongoing for you, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but rather of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let me ask you, do you have that faith this morning? Some do, but some do not. And that's often evident in the way that we respond to the changing circumstances of life, particularly when they become hard and difficult. Why is it that some are enabled to not shrink back from their professed faith to destruction, but rather to persevere and thereby by the ordained means that God has purposed to preserve their souls because of the great gift of God in Jesus Christ and the gift of faith to believe into Him? 
in all that He is and all that He has done. But if you do not have that kind of faith, biblical faith, if you are not believing into Jesus Christ in all He is and all that He has done, then is it any wonder that as things continue to shake in this world, whether it be on the international stage, whether it be in the Middle East, whether it be in the Far East, Again, you may have seen reports of launching of missiles. Perhaps you may wonder, well, will one ever reach this shore? What will happen if it does? What will that mean for me, my family, my community? If you have no hope anchored in anything beyond this world, then you may well quake at things like that. You may well quake. What, where will you turn for such things? I think I told you many, many years ago in a sermon, I take opportunity just for a few minutes this morning, when I was a student, uh, it was popular to have posters on walls in those days. You didn't have devices and all that kind of stuff. It was paper or card. Um, I ha- had a poster on my uh, a wall in my room as a student, um, and uh, of course, that time the great fear was, um, you know, nuclear, um, uh, just a, a whole kind of destruction. Um, that somehow the restraint of having ability to mutually destroy destroy each other would not hold. And so, on this very dark background, there was a picture, of course, of an exploding atomic bomb. And in very small words at the end, at the bottom of the poster, it posed the question, is this the end? Is this the end? And I think at the time, and probably still does to some extent, it captured um, a spirit of the age. It captured the anxiety in the hearts of many, uh, the fear of such a thing, and, and what would it mean? And then underneath it, because of course, um, there was a response from a Christian point of view. And the response was, no, I am coming soon. No, I am coming soon. The world has not been allowed to mutually destroy itself. God will fulfill His purposes. But you must have a hope in Him because there is a destruction coming which is not at the hands of men. But there is a destruction that is and will be inevitably fulfilled. And that's the wrath to come, the wrath of God against sin. Same question. Is this the end? Is there any hope? Perhaps the question might have been put a different version of the poster. And the answer to the wrath that is coming that is not by a physical bomb, but by the great and much greater destructive power of the wrath of God eternally upon body and soul forever and ever is the same answer. Yes, there is hope. It is not the end for all of those who will take refuge in Jesus Christ. 
last Star Trek analogy. We're thinking about Klingon's cloaking devices. You know, in the great Federation ships, particularly on the starship Enterprise, is the great shield. And whenever there comes the great attack, it's the great commanders, and it shields up. Shields up. Now, of course, in the great stories, they don't always hold. And uh, uh, part of the kind of ongoing series is the Enterprise keeps getting destroyed. Their shield is not able to withstand everything. Um, often think if um, the captains of the Enterprise had allowed their ships to get destroyed so often, how they're still in their positions. But that's, that's another uh, question. The point is here that using that illustration, the shield of God in the day of God's wrath is a shield that will hold. What will rescue from the coming wrath? It is God Himself who says, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. Who is whom? Christ Himself, that rock. And we will not be destroyed. You have need of endurance, the author of Hebrews says. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Verse 37, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. The future comes and it brings the fullness of salvation for believers. A day without trial, a day without tears, a day without suffering, hunger, danger, pain. Do you have that hope this morning? May God grant it to each one of us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us even as we look over the scene of time, which is the way in which you have ordered our world, past, present, and future. We pray as believers we might draw strength from the past where you have enabled us to persevere. We pray that therefore we might stand firm. We might be of those who do not shrink back, but rather be of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We pray for any, O Lord, who might be outside of Christ this morning, we pray that you would grant them such faith in your Son and deliver them from the coming wrath and grant all those who profess your name, O Lord, as we wait to do so, O Lord, by being about our Master's business, not sitting by idly, just simply waiting for the future to come and happen. Grant us, O Lord, to live as those who have the identity already of citizens of heaven, even whilst yet we are in this world. Grant us, O Lord, even great encouragement to know that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. We turn one final time to our hymnals this morning.